Welcome to Togi, the Odd Graduator's Inquiry, a podcast where we investigate unnecessary questions and speculate answers no one asked for. In this episode, we consider social legal critiques of the conventional criminal justice system. And in this part of the two-part series, we now explore restorative justice. What is restorative justice? Restorative justice is a paradigm of responding to crime and wrongdoing which has been said to be rooted in ancient traditions and rekindled in the West in the 1970s, particularly in experimental victim-offender reconciliation programs in Kitchener, initiated by Mennonite church communities. Today, it is practiced in various countries in different forms and has gained recognition by UN ECOSOC. Although restorative justice remains a contested concept, it is widely accepted to refer to a model which involves a problem-solving approach to crime, which involves the parties themselves and the community generally in an active relationship with statutory agencies, applying certain principles. First, personal involvement in main stakeholders, particularly the victim, offender, and their communities of care, for example, family members. Second, locating crime in social contexts, social conditions and relationships in the community. Third, focused on problem-solving, not guilt-finding. Fourth, flexibility of practice to respond to particular exigencies, needs and potential of individuals in each case, and characterized by certain core values. Fifth, centrality of victim in the process, to attend fully to victims' material, financial, emotional and social needs, including opportunity for victim to express feelings, views on outcome of the case and offender. Sixth, re- reparation of harms in recognition of wrong done. Seventh, encouraging offenders to assume active responsibility and reintegrating them into community. Eighth, presence of communities of care with the view of recreating a working community that supports rehabilitation of offenders and victims. Ninth, process values of deliberative dialogue and focus on restorative outcome. And tenth, voluntary, 11th, where legal safeguards are assured. Restorative justice processes in practice manifest in several forms, victim-offender mediation, victim-community support, offender-community support, family group conferencing, child dependency mediation, community restorative boards and sentencing circles. A typical restorative justice conference would involve the victim-offender communities of care, i.e. persons who care for these individuals, a facilitator and a representative from a statutory agency. The various individuals would talk about the event transpired, the motivations and feelings involved, with the aim of understanding perspectives of both sides and creating an environment that encourages empathy, apology, forgiveness and reconciliation. Everyone then discusses an agreement on future action steps, including the offender's offer to make restitution for the harm done, conduct of future relationship between victim and victim, victim and offender, and any reintegrative steps for offender or victim, including counselling, vocational skills equipping, job placement, or perhaps even assistance in managing debt or other socio-economic problems on the part of either parties. Empirical studies have revealed the restorative justice satisfies victims better than the conventional system. Offenders are more likely to honour their obligations to victims. More victims feel that the offender's apology was sincere. Offenders feel that the process was fair and satisfying. And there is a lower recidivism rate for offenders who underwent restorative justice. It has also been shown to restore and satisfy communities better. 
Practitioners and theorists remain divided on the relationship between restorative justice and the conventional criminal justice system. Some argue for a replacement of the conventional system, while others advocate for the restorative justice model to be located within the conventional system. For example, as a first line of defense, where failure of the restorative justice process would lead back to the conventional system. Having considered a brief introduction, we'll now consider and analyze various theoretical perspectives on restorative justice, and we'll also consider some critiques of restorative justice. First, theoretical perspectives. Reintegrative shaming, apology, and social norms. Brithwaite's theory of reintegrative shaming is a theory that explicates deviance incorporating aspects of labelling and subculture theory while taking into account individual and community-level factors to explicate criminal tendencies. The criminal aspect of this theory is the thesis that stigmatization shaming of crime makes crime worse while reintegrative shaming within a continuum of respect for the offender and terminated by rituals of forgiveness prevents crime. The theory built on previous theories of labeling, subculture, and differential association, hence giving it powerful explanatory force. Braithwaite argues that stigmatizing shaming would cause the offender to be cut off from interdependencies with family, neighbors, community, church, etc., and become attracted to criminal subculture. Participation in subculture supplies criminal role models, training and techniques of crimes and become influenced with motivations, i.e. differential association theory. High levels of stigmatization in society fosters criminal subculture formation by creating populations of outcasts with no stake in conformity, no chance of self-esteem within mainstream culture, and therefore crime rates increase. In contrast, a communitarian culture locates deviance within a network of attachments to society, preventing widespread outcasting, which leads to subculture formation. Further, societal structural inequalities also facilitate criminal subcultures as the systemic blockage of legitimate opportunities cause individuals to turn to illegitimate opportunities. These congregation of individuals would form criminal subcultures. Stigmatization contributes to systematic blockage of economic opportunities, but structural economic variables are the main determinant. Restorative justice processes exemplify this theory in that during restorative justice processes, victims and communities of care of both parties discuss the consequences of crime, articulating the feelings of those affected, including the offender's loved ones. This structures shame into the conference. The premise is that shame in the eyes of those we respect and trust, and not that of the nebulous concept of the public, as represented by police, judges, or media that affects individuals. The reintegrative aspect lies in the act of apology, forgiveness, reconciliation, and the ultimate agreement on how the various parties should resolve the situation. Various empirical studies have supported the efficacy of reintegrative shaming in causing offenders to experience remorse and forgiveness, as well as reduced recidivism. It's also been shown that stigmatizing shaming is indeed a strong predictor of recidivism. It has also been shown that a communitarian community does increase the participants' view of the process as positive. There are, however, questionable results from studies done at a micro level. In contrast to the conventional system, which fabricates deviance and unintentionally but inevitably reduce career criminals, restorative justice has the capacity to prevent those outcomes. Next, apology, social order, and social norms. 
The notion of apology is itself a complex phenomenon. The cultural value of apology constitutively affects the legal system and, more importantly, plays a role in managing deviance within a social order. Wagatsuma and Rosset studied contrasting attitudes towards apology in the United States and Japan. In Japan, apology is an act of acknowledgement of group hierarchy and harmony. With their focus on repairing the injured relationship between parties and between offender and social order, not on paying damages. In America, apology is seen as an important self-expression accompanied by justification or emphasis on acceptance of liability. US and Japan have differing values placed on group membership, conformity, and harmonious relationships. So in the US, the legal system reduces disputes to compensation, i.e. valuing a price to harm, and eschews relationships and intangible harms such as psychic hurt. In Japan, apology reintegrates an individual who is not in harmony with the rest of the group, while those outside are deemed as threats to the harmony and order. The law serves then to express and reinforce social harmony. Contextualized within restorative justice, apology thus plays a significant role in restoring the offender within the mainstream social order, while also restoring the victim by vindicating the victim's safety in this order. This is thus a form of conflict resolution operating under the shadow of the law. The criminal law is a reference point for the legal rights and obligations of the offender and victim, supplying the victim with bargaining chips to balance his power relationship with the offender. An accepted apology thereby avoids the conflict escalating into a legal one, which would be financially and emotionally taxing for both parties. This reintegrative aspect of apology is arguably less likely to occur in the conventional system which marginalizes the victim to the witness stand and often results in a punishment that offenders feel are disproportionate and unjustified, and therefore feel no responsibility for their crime, hence being unlikely to apologize and allow herself himself to be restored to the social order. This contrasts with the earlier discussion on criminal prosecution as social outrage. As Durkheim suggests, punishment communicates social order. In the restorative justice context, criminal legislation retains that role of expressing the social consensus on morality, values, and sensibilities. Yet, the restorative justice process conduces an intimate setting for shame to communicate the impact of an affected social order to the persons who arguably should be the target of the communication. Further, apologies may also indicate acknowledgement of the legitimacy of protests, recognizing redefined social norms, and shifting hierarchical orders. In the restorative justice context, it is therefore pushing the conflict resolution outside of the shadow of the law in that conflicts based on norms which may not be reflected in the law could still be resolved, insofar as responsibility for harm is accepted. This also causes parties to legitimate the social norm as between themselves. Granted, a redefined social norm that is legitimated in an informal restorative justice process would not mean legitimation in a wider society, but such an ideal may be purely abstract since it is acknowledged that the society is but constituted by many smaller social worlds with differing social orders and norms. Further, it is ultimately the injured individual who is at stake. Even if there is an issue, a social norm yet to be legitimated, the restorative justice process presents the environment for this victim to have her needs met. Again, in contrast with the conventional system, the inadequate Dekaimian notion of law reflecting a constant conscience collective is addressed. In between law playing catch-up to reflect the new social consensus and the point of injury, restorative justice legitimates the evolved and still evolving social order. 
Finally, it should be realised that in some cases, all that a victim needs or wants is a sincere apology from the offender, something which the conventional system does not provide. It has been noted that this is true especially in domestic violence survivors, who often do not even invoke the law. Fulfilling neglected goals and values reconstituting meaning of justice While the conventional system has constitutively shaped the cultural meaning of justice as being only about punishment, the restorative justice paradigm shift draws away from the traditional goals of the conventional system towards crucial goals and values such as victim, not offender-focused, deliberative, democracy and dialogue, reconciliation, not alienation. Although restorative justice has not achieved sufficiently widespread prominence and practice to have profound impact on changing the conventional meaning of justice, it might be said that this new meaning of justice as right relationships and restoring harmony or shalom could cause profound sociological consequences. Already at the national and international level, restorative justice values motivate and influence diplomacy and other forms of alternative dispute resolution processes such as mediation, as well as truth and reconciliation commissions, revealing large potential to heal fractured societies and prevent war. Of course, the critique would be that we have made a normative assumption that restoration of relationships and harmony is paramount over retribution or other goals. While this is not the appropriate forum for a discussion, on this normativity, it suffices to say that even from a consequentialist view, something which has proven to fail to achieve certain aims should make way for something which has potential to better achieve those aims and even more widely accepted aims. Indeed, a study revealed that the public does accept the desirability of multiple justice goals, while most people remain convicted about the need for punishment. It was mentioned earlier that the modern criminal system has stolen conflicts from individuals and the community. Restorative justice reverses this by returning social conflicts to victims and communities. The significance of this is, firstly, democratic participation in conflict processing as a social activity is critical for social arrangements. Restorative justice thus facilitates the reconstructing of communities with more concentrated social bonds. This is a positive end in itself, in light of the reintegrative shaming theory, which suggests that the more communitarian a community with its increased interdependency the lower the possibility of stigmatization and subscription to alternative subcultures and therefore crime. Secondly, citizens involved in the dialogical nature of restorative justice learn to be actively responsible as citizens and not reliant on the state, thus becoming active in social movement politics. This is coupled with infusing two key democratic values of empowerment of citizens and recognition, increased sensitivity to respond to others. Thirdly, more than educative, deliberative democracy holds that deliberations and discourse in undominated dialogue achieves intersubjective understanding among citizens so that outcomes arrived at are justifiable to all participants. Habermas's communicative theory also suggests that truth-finding through undominated dialogue brings participants closer to the underlying consensus. Importantly, the significance of narrative storytelling is extremely large for the individuals without power. Narratives are meaning-making, and having a platform to articulate them with all other parties being made to listen is empowering, and further, stakeholders co-author new narratives for the parties involved, allowing for new identities. Fourthly, it reduces victim structural barriers to justice. The informal, low-cost, supportive environment of restorative justice allows for victims to pursue claims notwithstanding their financial difficulties and lack of understanding or even availability of legal rights. One might even venture to suggest that the knowledge of presence of community support might encourage the victim to avoid the ethic of survival. 
Also, restorative justice focused on restoring relationships may provide victims assurance that it would repair existing long-term relationships and hence make it more attractive for victims to step forward where otherwise victims might be unwilling to expose the offender to criminal sanctions. This is especially so in domestic violence and work harassment cases. Another social impediment, that of the need to shun the label and role of victim, and feelings of powerlessness and loss of control, is also addressed in restorative justice. The restorative justice process empowers the victim by giving the victim control over the process instead of just being a witness. Allowing the victim to ask questions of the offender can, per se, be an empowering event, while further giving the victim to negotiate the agreed outcome as between parties further gives the victim a sense of control and dignity. Restorative justice has been criticised for Orientalism. Yet, a significant asset of restorative justice is that its values are rooted in various ethnic and religious traditions and thus has the potential to be well received in a myriad of cultures and communities. Indeed, it has been found that practices similar to restorative justice have been practiced in Australia Aboriginal communities, New Zealand Maori tribes, Native American communities, First Nations healing circles. Critics of restorative justice argue that restorative justice undermines social justice because it does not deal with social structural inequality or power imbalances. For instance, a feminist critique would be that restorative justice would put a battered woman with her offender one-on-one, -on -one, replaying the power imbalance and resulting in a re-victimization process that psychologically impacts the woman. It is wanted whether the presence of the communities of care would mitigate any power imbalance. Yet, feminist legal scholar Martha Minow has noted that retributive approaches may reinforce anger and a sense of victimhood. Reparative approaches instead can help victims move beyond anger and beyond a sense of powerlessness. It has also been found that generally, victims who underwent restorative justice processes emerge less afraid of victimization. Further, it should be noted that this cannot be a blanket argument for every type of violent relationship. Some only violent but not fraught with coercive control, some do not even involve intimate relationships, and in some cases, victims choose to remain with their partners after violence, and in these cases, intervention by reconciliation through restorative justice processes with the support of communities of care is better than none at all. It's also noted that apologies can allow victims to absolve themselves of the self-blame that many domestic violence victims carry with them. Another critique is that restorative justice undermines the achievements of the feminist movement in making domestic violence as a crime by privatizing justice or trivializing these crimes, undermining the social movement. Yet, it has been argued that court processes tend to foster a culture of denial, whereas restorative justice processes foster a culture of apology, and apology is deemed a powerful cultural device for taking a problem seriously. Further, criminal law remains a signifier and denouncer. The restorative justice process also treats crime more seriously than the conventional system because it focuses on the consequences of the offence on victims and finds meaningful ways to hold the offender accountable. Indeed, studies have shown that offenders are more likely to comply with the agreements resulted from restorative justice processes than with court orders. This suggests that offenders who undergo restorative justice processes take their wrongs and thus their obligations to victims more seriously. Also, in regard to social inequality, while restorative justice cannot deal with structural inequality and rightly so, the flexible problem-solving approach of restorative justice allows for creative and targeted ways to tackle the underlying problems such as through capacity building of the offender, for example, vocational skills training, job placement, social skills equipping, and so on. 
While it is acknowledged that this is an unfulfilled potential, it nevertheless remains to be an institutional capacity of restorative justice. It's also argued that restorative justice can achieve greater success at rehabilitation of offenders as it builds motivation, mobilizes resources, involves the community, and improves follow-through. Now, we have briefly considered some criticisms of restorative justice earlier, and we'll next consider two more other critiques. First, it has been critiqued that restorative justice fails to provide justice as it is insufficiently compensatory, since it would not accurately take into account costs to society and the state. Further, it is criticised that the more effective way to prevent crime is to increase the costs of crime by raising the severity and frequency of compensation. However, this law and economics critique of increasing costs as deterrence is oversimplified. Firstly, many crimes are committed irrationally, costs of crime would not have deterred them. Secondly, people have cognitive mechanisms that produce a reactance against threats, such that the more powerful the control technique, reward or punishment, the less likely the internalization of compliance as virtue. Thirdly, theories about reactance suggest that intentions to control are seen as attempts to limit freedom, so people react contrarily to the direction of control. Fourthly, it's also posited that the stronger deterrents are, the more rational actors will find countermeasures to undermine the deterrence. Fifthly, a focus on deterrence would result in a deterrence trap. The punishment has to be designed to deter the worst cases, which are often the least likely to be convicted, and this would cause overspills to the average cases. The bottom line is that such rational choice models are too simplistic for a forceful critique. Nonetheless, Braithwaite has developed a theory which explicates how restorative justice can produce a more deterrent effect than the conventional justice system by having more soft informal sanctions but which operate more consistently. Another common critique about restorative justice is that it actually increases social control by focusing on minor offenders at low risk of reoffending, and thus giving these minor offenders more incursive, more incursive penalties than they would otherwise receive. The response would be that it really depends on the practical implementation of restorative justice in the specific context, and particularly at issue is what type of offenders is restorative justice practice aimed at. Anyhow, it is to be wondered whether net widening in the restorative justice context is truly problematic. Under the conventional system, the penalty is enacted unilaterally by a coercive state, whereas under the restorative justice model, the responses are resultant of a consensus arrived at by joint deliberation of offenders and their community of care. Further, net widening is not necessarily bad. Net widening that increases freedom as non-domination under a republican theory is a good thing. Often many of the conflicts that would otherwise be eschewed by the criminal justice system are experienced as heavy burdens in the social relations of ordinary daily life, may lead to prolonged victimization, social isolation, illness, and even violence. Further, under a Foucauldian analysis, it is but another form of governmentality deploying techniques of discipline to obtain reformed self-identities who locate themselves within some notion of a peaceful community. Thus, restorative justice processes are seen as tools to fashion self-identities that perpetuate governmental power and control over society. Again, it must be said that this is not necessarily a problematic thing. The more important issue is whether government power is deployed to prevent fundamental change where they should be. As mentioned, restorative justice has the potential to increase democracy and social movement politics. Further, another issue would be whether the restorative justice movement is co-opted by the state apparatus to the extent that its goals and values have become conformed to that of the state. Now, having considered the literature on the conventional criminal justice system and the restorative justice model, it becomes clear that the restorative justice model is an ambitious response to the former, providing goals and ideals that supersede the former and which purports to better achieve the aims of the former. More research needs to be conducted on the claims that restorative justice makes. 
Yet, this enterprise would still be constrained insofar as restorative justice practitioners fail to implement it according to the purported ideals. And here, the gap between ideals and realities remains uncertain and contested. Nonetheless, restorative justice remains a promising model for rethinking criminal justice. Thank you for listening. If you would like to suggest a topic or share your thoughts, please feel free to write to me at ronaldwongjj at gmail.com.